Good morning. I will be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left under the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We don't want you to be like those with no hope. We uh, got, Paul writes to the folks in Thessalonica. It's one of the earliest letters that we have in the entire New Testament. And Paul reaches out to them because they're asking some questions, some very, very basic questions. This gospel you preach said that Jesus died and rose again and that he's coming back to bring all of us to, to be with him, to be like him. And he hasn't come. And some of us who have responded to the gospel, some of those who have responded to the gospel have even died before he has come back. And their question is, what happens? And Paul simply wants to affirm. And it's not just in this idea of what happens at the resurrection, what happens to those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. This is a question about who we are and what we do in life. It says, don't lose your hope. The hope that Jesus rose from the dead, that that which had died was reanimated and reanimated in a way that would never be corrupted or die again, is what we have to look forward to. Jesus is coming back, and those who have fallen asleep in the Lord will be first. And then, wouldn't it be great if it happened in our lifetime? Then we will join Him. We will join Him in that eternity, in that heaven, and He will make all things new, including our very own bodies. It's going to be an amazing thing. But at, throughout the letter, Paul wants to be sure to help us understand there are you who have hope in Jesus Christ, who have hope in the resurrection, have hope in the power of the cross to make things right with God. But you have hope as opposed to people who don't have hope. People who don't know the resurrection. People who don't believe that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. That Jesus was God's son who came to be among us. And it doesn't show up just in the way that we make a proclamation of we believe Jesus died and rose. It shows up in the way you live. In your identity as a person who wants to follow Christ. Because if we expect to be like him in resurrection, we want to be like him. We want to be like him in the way that we live, in the days that we live, in the way that we conduct ourselves, not just on a day when our lives on this earth end and we fall asleep into that rest. Paul uses that fall asleep word, step into that rest and that peace. That's not the day that we figure out if you've got hope or not. We figure out you've got hope every single moment of every single day.
I love the way Deuteronomy says it, when you rise up and when you lie down. So from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, whether you're in the house or out of the house, whether you've got a mask on or don't have a mask on, we discover where your hope is. And if that hope is not just for something that's out there, but that hope is something that makes a difference today. It's a very familiar story. Jesus is encountered by what is described as a rich young man or a rich young ruler. But he's a, he's a good person. He's a person who, who wants to pursue God. He has studied the law. He's a, a good Jewish man. And for most of the people who, who lived in that time and who surrounded Jesus, they thought as this man walked up, he said, here's a guy who's got his hope in the right place because God has rewarded him. We can see it in, in the way that he has been blessed physically on this earth. And Jesus says, you really want to put your hope in me? You're going to need to let go of the thing that probably your hope is most placed in. Your hope is in your stuff. Your hope is in that fact that the bank account looks really good. Your hope is in the idea that the house is all set up and there's fields and there's profit coming in. Your hope is in those things. Instead, Jesus said, God really needs you to let those things go so that you can come and step into a life of obedience, a life of faith, but ultimately a life that isn't about hope in the things of this world, but is about hope in the things that are of God. Go sell it all and give it to the poor. Use it for what God has given it to you for in the first place. And come follow me. It seems to be this moment in the, in the text where the rich man is said to have walked away sad because he, he and, and again it says he had much wealth. But in reality what it means is he had much faith in his wealth. He had much hope in his wealth. His life was defined by his wealth, not by his relationship to God. And what he knew was coming in God's present, in God's near future, and God's eternal future. He had instead much wealth. But you know, even though that day he turned around, I have a feeling there was a, another day where those words rang in his head again and said, I've got to hold on to something better. We never know. The text doesn't tell us whether he ever turns around and comes back. Maybe he's one of those 5,000. Maybe he's one of those 3,000, 5,000 on the hill that hear that lesson and are part of what takes place when Jesus feeds them. But maybe he's also part of that 3,000 who are cut to the heart and say, you know what? If Jesus can rise from the dead, none of this money makes any difference at all and lets it go and is baptized that day and becomes one that's counted. I love the way the scene from the movie The Resurrection of Gavin Stone portrays this. Gavin Stone is, a, is kind of a recovering derelict. Too much alcohol, too much drugs, too much money, too much of all the wrong things, and then he's called to play this part. And, and he's playing the part of Jesus in the, in the play that they're doing for resurrection season. Gavin Stone comes into this scene recognizing that while he's portraying Jesus, his life is the life of the rich young man. And they're all following the script. 
well, you know the law, and, and he says, yes, and I've kept it. And he says, well, then go and sell all you have. Go and give it all away and come follow me. And the rich young man says, I, I can't do it. He's on script, and he starts to turn, and Gavin reaches out and touches him. He says, no, wait. You have no idea what you're missing. You can't know the joy and the good and ultimately the, the true wealth of God that can be yours if you let go of the stuff of this life and you put your hope in God. We see this one moment in his lifetime, but in reality, and to a certain extent, we sort of make it about one moment in our lifetime. Am I making a decision for God? No, I'm not making I'm, I'm giving, I'm tithing the way I should. I'm, I'm being generous to the poor. I, I give my money to great organizations and things akin to that. I'm not relying on my money, but in reality, that decision is made every single day. The same way that this young man walked away disappointed, and that's the end of his story as far as we read it there, he had many opportunities to turn and to say, no, I don't want it. And we have many opportunities that God opens a door for and say, I want to be a people of hope. But Satan is always pulling. Satan is always saying, can you really count on God? Is there really anything that's worth giving up all the wonders of this life? The same way that he takes Jesus up to the high hill and shows him, not just all the nations and all their political flowers, but he, it shows, Matthew says, it shows him the splendor of all the nations. Look at all that can be yours and I'll give it to you. And if you'll just fall down and worship me, if you'll take your hope, your faith, your trust, your obedience and push it away from God and towards me because in the world that Satan wants to generate there's only momentary fleeting what we might call pleasure but with the Lord there is eternal hope there is eternal reward there is eternity in the presence of God and that is what he calls us to you see, it wasn't when Judas took the 20 pieces of silver that all hope was gone. In fact, one could make the argument that Judas was hopeful that getting Jesus and the Jewish leaders together would lead to kind of, they can work their differences out. and Maybe something good will come of this. And besides, I'll get 20 pieces of silver out of the deal. I don't even know that all hope was gone when he kissed Jesus in the garden. And they took him away in chains. No, hope wasn't really gone because the story that is juxtaposed to Judas's story is the Peter story. And the Peter story is about not just denying Jesus once or twice, but three times and emphatically. And yet Peter is able to be restored. It is Judas who chooses and says, there's no hope for me. There's no hope of restoration. And he chooses to end his life. And I realize that there is no text for this necessarily. But I say to you, the way that the Judas story is told and the way that the Peter story is told is to show us that Judas is the one who gave up on God, not God giving up on Judas. I don't ever want to stand in judgment when I hear about a suicide. 
We do not know what's going on inside a person's mind. We can't make, make a decision from our perspective outside of their own mind and their own skin and their own flesh. I would never proclaim a word of condemnation on them, but I would say to anyone who's listening, if your life ever takes you to that point where you say, is it worth going on? God says yes. You have no idea what's over the next hill. You have no idea what's around the next corner. And you may say, the only thing that can be around the next corner is worse. God says, no, it doesn't. And ultimately, I can redeem you from anything, and I can redeem anything to my service and to the blessing not only of yourself but of others. Don't give up on God. Don't be one who has no hope. But again, I want to say, the process of holding on to hope, the process of being a people who say, I'm not going to quit on God, is not simply a process that we make when we step into the baptistry and say, no, God, you've got it all. It's not just a process that we, that we go through, and it's not just a decision we make when we get our first paycheck and we decide, am I going to give a little of that to God, or am I going to get a lot to that to God? It isn't a process that we make when we set up our retirement system, when we say, I am completely set. Nothing can ever happen to me because of my 401k or the lack thereof. But we are people who every single day make decisions that point towards a living hope in what Jesus was and is and that that makes a difference in every single day of our life. And in the same way, the absence of hope defines our actions every single day as well. Matthew chapter 25 is a section of scripture where Jesus, Matthew is collecting some sayings and putting them right here at the end. It's the last of the long sermons that Matthew puts together. All of chapter 25 is a series of parables that point towards warning people, don't let go of your hope. Don't let go of your hope today because of what God has coming in the future. I want to go to the last of those, probably the most familiar of the parables from this section. I'll only read half because the parable basically becomes a mirror, the positive and the negative, the hope and the no hope. Read with me. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Isn't that amazing to think about the fact that when God was creating, He was getting ready for what was going to happen at the end, which has been prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then these words, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and invited me in. I want you to hear how the words intensify as they move forward. Is not just a comparison. And one of the things that makes it very much like a parable, it isn't that these are some sort of check boxes that we need to be sure and check, but instead it's a description of an intensification of relationship. Things get closer, it costs us more, 
It makes us be involved a little bit more. So again, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then this question, we like this question. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, we'd, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And again, here's the idea that my hope is somehow summed up in a moment. Ah, oh, I'll come to the moment and I'll make the right decision and everything will be done and everything will be right. Like that rich young man who had that moment and yes, failed in that moment. But is that the end of his story really? Does it have to be the end of our story really? When did we see you? When did we see you and give you something to drink? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did it for me. For one of the least of these. You know, we sometimes plan for those big moments in life. The big question will come, and will I, will I come through in that moment? Will the, will the thunder and the, light, thunder stri- the lightning strike and the thunder break the sound of the silence of the sky? And we, and we say, yes, God, I make a decision for you. And yet maybe the definition of our hope or our lack of the kind of hope that God wants us to have is made in the little individual daily routine-like decisions of how we treat, not the people that come up and we say, ah, there's somebody that's important, but instead it's the people that maybe are on the margins that we're not always noticing to one of the least of these. You see, the way we live every single day either affirms or denies the hope that we have in Jesus. Did Jesus go to the cross? And the answer is yes. But maybe even a more resounding yes need to be, did Jesus rise from the grave? And if Jesus rose from the grave, then the call to live a life that is consistent, not with the things of this world, but consistent with the things of an empty tomb, become a way to live on a day-by-day basis. Whatever your role in life is, whether you're a business person, whether you're an employee, whether you're a process tech, whether you're a student, whether you're one of those wonderful moms who chooses to stay home and invest so much in raising her children, whatever it is, or maybe you're one of those people who's kind of waiting for what's next, whatever's going on in your life, you have the opportunity to respond to the world around you with a hopeful attitude. What does my care for the least of these say about my living hope? Are they worth my time? And Jesus would say the answer is yes. Is it worth me investing something in them if it, if it depletes a little bit of my bank account? Or more than that, depletes a little bit of my time account? How do I live in such a way to say that, you know what, I'm not holding on to the things of this world. Instead of being like the rich young man who walks away sad and says, you know, I'm just not sure that it's worth what Jesus is saying it's going to cost. We get to say no. 
I see it through the lenses of an empty tomb. I see it through the lens that God is going to come back and be the ultimate victor and bring it all in line with everything he's always wanted. And I want to live that way today. And maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, you have the opportunity to plant a seed in someone whose life is empty of hope and because of your small action, not that it is the ultimate action that changes everything that ever happens to them again, but it's a seed says, no, the difficulty, the struggle doesn't have to be the last word in your life. Maybe number two, all the successes in this world don't add up to the hope of the next. What does my care for the least of these say about my living hope? But I think Jesus has a deeper meaning, and Matthew wants to be sure and try and convey that to us. What am I willing to do to reach the gospel of living hope? Because when you look at those, those things, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick. I needed clothes. I was in prison and you came to see me. These are all scenarios that the disciples, those who would go out and preach the gospel, will wind up in. Jesus tell them, don't, don't take a bunch of food with you. You're going to be dependent on the people out there. You may show up in town and be need a place to stay and will people open the door and let you in will people care for you when you're a long ways from home and you've you've been you've been using all your energy to preach the gospel and 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 you need someone to take care of you for a little while and probably most poignant the reality that those who would proclaim the gospel would be imprisoned by the roman government and you either say the gospel is so important to me that I'm willing to go and see somebody in jail. And they're in jail because they've been proclaiming the gospel. And you become guilty by association. What am I willing to do to reach the gospel of living hope? Jesus offers freely to all of us a life that moves from death to really living, from sin to absolute forgiveness, from a life without hope to a life that is full of hope because of who he is and what he's done. What are you willing to do? Not just in one moment, like I said, in a baptistry or when the preacher calls everybody to come down forward and repent. But what are you willing to do on a daily basis to pursue the gospel? I want you to get your elements of the Lord's Supper ready. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, and we want you to all join us in, at the same time together. Even though we're a long ways apart, we want to be together. And, and, and it becomes this routine, week in, week out, but I invite you today to think about I want the bread because it represents the hope that I have in Christ. I want the cup because it represents the forgiveness and the new life that I have in Him. I want it. I'm not going to let anything keep me from reaching out and taking it. And what He says is those who take Him in, they're part of Him and He is part of them.
We have some prayer requests that we want to make sure we take note of and, and uh, want to invite you to, to maybe make some notes as we do this. Uh, Nicole Osborne let us know late this week that her stepfather, Jim, uh, is in the hospital with a brain bleed. We don't have any update on this yet, but let's remember Jim in our prayers. Rudy Hardigy, late Friday, let us know that he had a hand injury, which he had surgery on either late Friday or early Saturday, but he is back. As you saw, the, the prayer was filmed after that, and he expects to have a full recovery. We're really thankful for that. Mary Lou Leon's brother, who have we reported had the rattlesnake bite, is doing much better, is home now, and seems to that, again, he'll make a full recovery. We want to continue to remember Cindy Yates' uncle, Sonny Girdley, and his wife, Joy, both of whom have been struggling with uh, health concerns, but, again, both improving. We also got an update from Rhett Pier on Rhett Pierce, Ashley, Nef Ashley Nesbitt's nephew up in Oklahoma, Still very small, still has a lot of tubes in him, but he's improving, he's getting stronger, he's breathing more on his own all the time. We want to uh, express our condolences to Vic Leon's family at the loss of his sister last week, and also Ozzy Garcia's family, Irma Olegay, passed away last Tuesday, and Ozzy was able to be with them, and he's back again. We're thankful that he's back home. Lindsay Phillips let us know late in the week, Lindsay down in Brazil, that her home church has just started kind of meeting together. Uh, they are only allowing 30 people to meet at a time, all very separated, all masked up completely. They, she said the first weekend they had 12 services to get services with 30 people at a time. She also wanted us to know that some, some very positive things are help, happening on the, the process of the renovation to Hope House. And she really specifically asked us to be in prayer about that. We want to continue to remember Shelly Bryant, our mission emphasis for June. This will be the last time that we really push and talk about her, and so keep her in your prayers. And I think it's important that we also mention that we continue to remember our, uh, the global leaders, our national leaders, our state and local leaders. And I want to specifically ask, I did this in the update, I want to ask that you pray for our elders who are... Uh, working very hard to discern well, to do what's best, uh, particularly in the life of the faith and the congregational life of this church, but also to be good citizens at this difficult time. So keep them in your prayers as well. I love those words from John chapter 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, so often we come to our relationship with God thinking, okay, I'm going to put my fruits all together and I'm going to show them and he's going to accept me. There are very few tools that Satan uses more effectively than the idea, well, you better get your stuff together and show it off to God, and it better be clean enough and shiny enough and pretty enough for God to take it. God says, no. I've made you, that word, I've made you clean already that Mike read just a minute ago, is the idea that I've already pruned. If you've, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I've already pruned, and you're clean. You're ready to produce fruit. All you need do is hold on to the vine. I'm not sure that hope is defined any more basically and practically than the idea that I'm not going to let go of God. 
And maybe you haven't started that relationship. Maybe you've kind of toyed with the idea of God and Jesus and those kind of things. And maybe you say, no, 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 I want to make that an official relationship. I really want to, I want to tie in. I want to be one of those vines that's tied into the branches. And that's what the waters of baptism are about. But we also have the reality in our lives that Satan kind of makes us move and pray. We get in those storms and the boat tosses and we're like, how are we going to do it? And Jesus says at the most basic level, it's not that you're getting it all right. It's not that you're always saying the right words. It's that you never let go. That you always hold on. And you always look for the next opportunity where his fruit not your fruit, his fruit is poured into you and it gets to go out to others. If you are somebody who needs to respond to the invitation, uh, if you're a part of our church family, you have the numbers of one or more of our elders and I would encourage you to text or call them at this time. But if you're one of those folks who's not part of our church family, we invite you to make your requests known. Whether they're special prayer requests or whether they're spiritual requests, make those known at that number there that's on the screen, 979-217-3300. Please understand that those will remain private, or at least as private as you want them to be. We're going to sing a song. This may be an opportunity that you want to just kind of be silent and maybe even kneel and pray and say, God, I never want to let go of you. Or maybe it's a time that you actually want to pick up that phone and start texting communicate with somebody and maybe even that text is one that's not that's intended for you to request help but that you know that you need to help someone else the fruit of God has flowed into you and you want to let it go out to the people that the spirit is calling you to help during this song let's take the time to do that